This archival episode of Design Matters was recorded in December 2016. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Gail Bickler about magazine design and the role of the magazine cover in the digital age. Covers, I think, are making the rounds in social media often before the magazine even comes. They're like a little piece of art that people pass around. Here's Debbie Millman. You never know quite what you're going to get when you open up the New York Times magazine. Great columns, articles and photos, yes. But the design is what really keeps readers on their toes. In one issue this year, the type was all sideways, so you read it like a scroll. Headlines play daringly with typography and color. The artwork is striking and memorable. Even the table of contents can be a visual adventure. Gail Bickler has had a strong hand in all of this. She's the design director of the magazine, and she joins me today to talk about what she does at the Times and what she did before she got there. Gail Bickler, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Gail, I read that as a child you were fascinated with photorealistic drawing, and you would spend hours drawing pictures from magazines, replicating every tiny detail. What magazines did you draw, and do you still have any of those drawings? <laughs> I do, actually. You do? Um, I do. Um, what I used to do was take images from women's magazines and cut them down the center and then kind of photorealistically draw the other half of the picture. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I have a bunch of them. And did you draw anything from the New York Times or the or the magazine section? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't that sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been pretty cool. Yes, <laughs> I had this fantasy of you doing it and predicting your whole life. <laughs> um, I understand you also drew cartoons for friends in grade school, and one made-up character that drew quite a bit of attention was a bird named Cool Sky. Coolski. 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 Yes, yes. I think maybe one of my friends named it that. But I used to do a lot of drawings for people and um, in grade school, spent a lot of time making little cartoons and that kind of thing. You grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a small city in the American Midwest, and you went to the University of Michigan. Yes. What made you decide to go to Michigan for college? I knew that I wanted to do something with art, but I also knew that I wanted to get a liberal arts education. So I actually got a BFA and a BA in psychology at Michigan. Now, you initially studied fine art. What kind of career were you envisioning at that point in your life? I wanted to be a fine artist. I wanted to be a painter. painter. Yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of painting. What made you decide to switch your major to design? I never actually really fully you know, changed over to graphic design. I studied a lot of fine art, and but I was also putting myself through school, paying for my own education. I waited tables at night and uh, during the summer. I often waited tables both at lunch and dinner shifts at different restaurants. Wow. And I knew that going forward, if you want to have a career in fine art, it's a lot of work and you have to find another way to support yourself. So I decided that I wanted to have a job during the day that I could really care about, um, something that was visual. Um, so that's when I started taking graphic design classes. But in truth, I maybe took three or four um, in school. My degree was mostly in printmaking. Do you regret 
at all having not become a fine artist? I don't regret it at all. I thought for a long time that I was going to go back and eventually become a fine artist. But I am somebody who usually goes at things pretty wholeheartedly. So when I got out of school, I moved to Chicago. Uh, I got a job at a book design studio. And one of the reasons that I was attracted to their work was because they did a lot of books on fine art. So it was a kind of way for me to stay close to the subject matter that I was really interested in. Um, they were very ambitious in that studio. That's and, Studio Blue. And did you work for Cheryl Taylor Weiss? I did, yeah. Yeah, she was my first boss. <laughs> and, you know, the work that we did, it wasn't like a side project. It was right. a full-on, you know, very intense um, graphic design experience. And I would still go on the weekends and go into the studio and make prints. But it was pretty hard, you know, to be that engaged with your with your job and also do fine art on the side. And so I kind of struggled always feeling like I wasn't really quite getting to the studio enough to make to make what I wanted to make. And all the while, I was really kind of absorbing a lot at Studio Blue and coming to realize that I love typography. So you worked at Studio Blue for about seven years and then moved to Minneapolis. What made you decide to move to Minneapolis? My husband got a job there. <laughs> ah, so you decided to go with him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a job? Your husband is also in the creative field. He's a creative director in advertising, and he got a job uh, working for Fallon in Minneapolis. I was a little bit reluctant because I loved Chicago, but we moved there, and I started my own business there kind of working out of our apartment by Now, myself. I know you didn't like doing that. Yeah. You were also teaching at the time. So it's sort of interesting in looking at the trajectory of your life how this um, unhappiness of working on your own alone in the apartment and then teaching and then first teaching publication design sort of led you to where you are now. Yeah. And it's always interesting. I always find that when people's lives take a turn at that moment when they're sad or feeling that things aren't quite going the way you would hoped or wanted, yeah. that that is so pivotal to where you end up. Yeah, I think that's really true. It was a very tough time for me. And also, as you say, I was I started teaching. That was a much better experience for me. I started to know some more people through Minneapolis College of Art and Design, where I taught. And yeah, kind of discovered magazine design through a class that I was teaching, in a way. In 2004, you and your husband decide to move to New York. In a staggering moment of courage, you cold-called the then-creative director of the New York Times magazine, the brilliant Janet Froelich, and you asked her for a job. Did she pick up the phone? How did you get to her? How do you cold-call somebody like that and ask for work? <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, I emailed her. <laughs> okay, so you cold emailed. I cold emailed, yes. Um, and what I what I did was I sent three of my best book projects, things that I was really proud of, and basically expressed interest in the magazine. Um, at the time, I didn't know that she was actually the creative director over both Tea and the Sunday Magazine and was primarily involved with Tea. She liked my work, and she called me and asked me to come in for an interview. So... That was pretty great. <laughs> and then you got a three-week gig with her. Yeah, a three-week gig that um, has now turned into 12 years. How do you start a three-week gig or what you think will be a three-week gig and best impress someone? I had never worked in a magazine, um, so there was a pretty steep learning curve for me. 
But one thing that I've always been pretty good about is working really hard. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes what I lack in experience, I can make up for um, just in terms of the sheer amount of effort I'm willing to put in. And so, you know, the kind of stuff that I was doing um, for T, for Janet, was, you know, mostly kind of front of book pages for T. It wasn't any great, you know, I, I was doing um, something that not particularly experienced designers do, and I was doing a pretty good job at that. And I was, you know, absorbing what was around me and kind of figuring out magazines. Um, and so I was doing my job reasonably well. And <laughs> I'm not sure that I stuck out as, like, super impressive at that point, although I would like to think that. Well, three weeks turned into a year-and-a-half freelance job. And in 2006, you were hired as the New York Times Magazine Deputy Art Director. So yes. clearly <laughs> you, you were a quick learner. Yes. <laughs> um, you worked for um, five years for Rem Duplessis? Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Quite a long time. Yeah, and I was going to say that, so I spent a year with Janet at T and learned a huge amount about magazines. Uh, but I realized that designing for fashion was actually a little bit hard for me. In um, what way? How come? I felt like a lot of uh, really good fashion design is just kind of responding to the imagery and also being able to make something um, quite beautiful Um and sometimes there isn't as much of a framework for your decisions as I like to have. And I found it a little bit hard to kind of work in those instances. Like I, I think that a lot of times I need to have more underpinnings to a design or more ways to think about it in order to make something satisfying. You were promoted from deputy art director when you first were working for REM to art director. Was there a significant difference in the roles and what you were doing? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I mean, basically, the structure of the departments changed. Janet ended up leaving, and Rem became the design director of the magazine, and then I became the art director. But, you know, it was pretty similar. I mean, as the time wore on that I was working there, I was taking on more and more responsibility. Of course, I was growing in that way. But the title change didn't really, didn't really mean a lot um, because I was always his number two. So it was great to get the title change, but it didn't really change my job responsibility so much. Rem left to become a creative director at Apple in 2014, and you became the design director of the magazine. What has that experience been like for you? It's been really great. And I, I have to say I was quite scared about it to begin with after working with Rem for such a long time. And there was something kind of nice about making this great work, working with somebody who I love to work with, and being a little bit anonymous um, mm. in terms of just being able to really enjoy the work and not have the pressure of being the one that had to have all the answers or, you know, even being able to make something as part of a team uh, without your name being kind of the one at the top. And so I was actually a little bit afraid. <laughs> really? Yeah. When it first happened, I knew I wanted to get the job. I knew I, I wanted to. Because you really had to work to get the job. It wasn't just handed to you on a silver platter. No, absolutely not. Rem had gone to Apple, um, and we also lost our editor. So there was a period of time where the two deputy editors underneath the previous editor were kind of helming the magazine, and we were waiting for a new editor. And often when the new editor comes, he wants to you know, bring his own person. And having been kind of next up for that job and worked in the job underneath the number one spot for 10 years, even though I was a bit scared, I knew that I really had to 
take it on and that I really wanted to take it on and wouldn't be able to forgive myself if I didn't try pretty aggressively to get that job. Was it uncomfortable for you to be that aggressive about going after what you wanted? Yeah, and I I didn't start out that way, (laughs) but I realized pretty quickly that if I didn't make a really aggressive play to get the job, that it was not going to go to me. So I did a lot of things just uh, in terms of coming up with a vision for what the magazine should be and being pretty vocal um, internally about wanting the job and kind of really, you know, coming out of my comfort zone. And uh, it was actually very empowering to get the job, (laughs) you know, after pushing for it for about eight months. Well, congratulations. After 10 years and eight months, it's (laughs) well-deserved. Um, Before we talk more about the specifics of the job, let's talk for a moment about the election. Uh, As a Times staffer, I know that your political leanings must stay out of your work, no matter who you are or what you do. Yes. I guess aside from the opinion writers like Charles Blow. Were you at the Times the day that Trump visited? I was. What was the mood like? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It was kind of surreal. There's been a lot of apprehension about a lot of the things that Trump has said about the New York Times and some of the things that he said about libel laws. But from what I understand, all of his negative publicity for the Times has actually been good for the Times in terms of subscription rates being up. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've been reading. No, that's true. Uh, We had up to about 10,000 new subscribers daily. Wow. Since the election. And I think people are just investing um, because, you know, it's a time when we really need truthful journalism and and people are kind of flocking to the times to get that. Do you think there will be a change in how the media covers politics? Yeah, I think the change has already occurred. In what way? What do you see as being the biggest differences? Well, for the times, we were grappling with how to cover a lot of different issues. Um, I think right now the biggest thing being discussed, as far as I can tell, is how to cover the tweets. (laughs) You know, I mean, it seems like Donald Trump is bypassing the media in a lot of ways um, and also is doing a lot of things that maybe some people could consider to be diversionary tactics. Um, And we are looking at all these different ways of covering what's happening. Talk about how you go about designing the magazine. If you were coming into the office, say, today, and had to make a plan for the next magazine. We have a, a schedule of that goes out a couple months, uh, and we are often discussing upcoming stories and how they need to be arted. There's a lot of stories that have an obvious kind of um, visual We have an amazing photo team at the Times, headed up by Kathy Ryan, uh, and they are often out ahead of many of the stories um, and getting them photographed. Um, And then there are a lot of stories that we do that are where the visuals just aren't obvious at all. Um, And those are the stories that I tend to get most involved in, in terms of trying to think of ways to visualize things that are often pretty complex and somewhat abstract. In terms of thinking about those kinds of stories, it really starts with language for me. When I have a whole manuscript to read, oftentimes I find that a lot of the language in the stories triggers ideas for me uh, in terms of what a visual should be. So what is the approval process like? Do you do one design? Do you do a series that you then show the editor? What is the way forward once you have an idea or ideas? So once we do have an idea for art, uh, we often check in with the editor um, at various points in the process uh, to make sure that he's on board with the direction that it's moving in. 
our timeframes are pretty tightly condensed because of the fact that it's a weekly. So we will get a headline on either a Monday or a Tuesday, and we'll have a couple days to come up with a design. And we show, show it as a direction, along with just the imagery that we've picked out for the story to get approval. Usually a direction gets picked in some form. We refine it and show it one more time. Covers are a different story. Um, covers are pretty complex um, in terms of getting approvals on those. And sometimes we go down a number of different paths, uh, both with imagery and in terms of design. So sometimes we'll have many, many options <laughs> um, that we'll show, and, and then eventually our editor will go in one direction or the other. Last year, you launched a multi-platform redesign, which involved substantial changes to the content, to the look and feel of the publication in all mediums. Can you talk about some of the changes that you made and how the response has been? We did a pretty drastic redesign. As our editor, Jake, noted, we got rid of all of our fonts. Uh, we worked with um, Henrik Kubel, who drew all new fonts for us. Um, we changed a lot of the columns, and we really stripped down the magazine in order to make it feel more literary. Um, how, do you, how do you go about doing that? <laughs> well, one of the things that we did was um, our front of book pieces, our editor basically made them a series of small essays. We used to have pieces that were a little bit bittier, you know, um, and we got rid of most of those. So some of it was, you know, adjusting to the new content that our editor um, wanted to have. And some of it was really just an approach to the design, which was simple but graphic. And one of the things that we also tried to do was to look at what had worked in the magazine in years past and pay attention to the history. Um, the magazine has been an incredibly successful publication for a long time, and so we wanted to learn from that. So we did a lot of things. While we got rid of all of the fonts and made a lot of changes, we also did some things to preserve the things that were most recognizable about the brand, uh, including you know, basing one of our fonts off of one of the brand fonts that has been in the magazine for quite a long time. And even just ways of approaching things, the ideas of how we would use white space or approaches to art, a lot of those things we preserved, even though we changed a lot of, of the kind of superficial design details. Um, I think we preserved the spirit. You worked with the great, the legendary type designer, Matthew Carter, to redesign the New York Times magazine typeface or logo. How would you, because it's both, how would you refer to it as would you, the masthead? I'm forgetting the term. I was told the term recently. There's a more technical term for a magazine masthead, but we called it the masthead or the logo. Um, we were looking at kind of bringing our logo closer to some of the other things that were happening in the Times. So uh, we looked at a number of other um, mastheads uh, within the company and kind of based our choice off of one that we that we like the direction of, but also asked for it to be much more contrasty. And um, Matthew is great. He just is really fast. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have, we didn't have a ton of contact because, you know, he maybe did three versions of it and then, you know, we loved it. So, so it was, I, I find him incredibly intimidating. I don't know if it's his height or his stature, but I'd feel like I would, my knees would be shaking. I've yet to interview him on Design Matters, mostly because of how intimidated <laughs> I am uh, in his presence. Yeah, he's great. 
Talk about how you work with illustrators. You work with also some of the world's greatest illustrators. Do you engage their services by asking for a range of ideas, or do they just come back to you with an idea? For example, how Christoph Niemann did the the Great Food Issue cover with that wonderful illustration of the girl sort of with the pan and the yeah. flying food. That's one of my favorites. And it he's... really is an extraordinary cover. Yeah, thank you. In terms of what we ask for, it really depends on the story. A lot of the time, we're going to an illustrator and asking them to make something to come up with ideas. You know, In that case, we usually ask for a range of ideas. But there are also times when we go to somebody with an idea uh, and ask them to execute that. And usually when we do do that, we ask them also to add in any of their own ideas in the hopes that they might better <laughs> the thing that we've been pushing for, which is ideal. I think those make for the best for the best covers. A real change in the way the magazine looks online. There's no question now when you look at something from the magazine section, it's very much branded from the magazine section. There's also been a lot more um, material that feels more interactive and involving the the viewer, the reader. Um, how involved have you been in that kind of transition? Very involved. Um, we have just recently gotten uh, an interactive designer in our department, and one of the goals in having her there was to be for her to be involved at the outset of each of the stories. But I would say during the redesign that we did last year, one of the main considerations was coming up with a more succinct identity that would be recognizable online, both as part of the time, but also as a separate entity. One of the ways that we did that was by maximizing our use of photography. So we got a kind of full bleed template for our articles. So that's one clear distinction between magazine articles and articles from the paper, although there are exceptions where the paper does use full bleed imagery as well. And then also oftentimes a more aggressive design approach. One of the unique and lucky aspects of the New York Times magazine section from a design point of view is that the magazine doesn't have to scream from a newsstand to capture somebody's attention. And oftentimes when working on magazine covers, you have to think about the type of headlines, the the amount of numbers you're going to put on because people love to see 873 new fashion ideas or 17 ways to spice up your sex life. <laughs> you don't have to do those types of things. We do not. Um, which is wonderful. How does that impact the kinds of covers that you do? It's interesting. It, it does impact what we do quite a lot. And I think what it allows us to do is uh, be more adventurous and sometimes controversial in terms of the different kinds of stories that will run on our cover. Uh, we will often put something on the cover that can be pretty hard to digest. Are you talking about the abortion issue? Yeah, and, and many others. You know, we'll run things on refugees or, you know, we did a piece on uh, women who were being uh tested for their gender in the Olympics. We run a lot of um, pretty tough stories, even, you know, stories about um, depression during pregnancy and, you know, other things that I think a lot of other magazines might shy away from because it's not the kind of thing that you're going to run to and pick up on the newsstand necessarily. But they're really important stories, and they're some of the stories that I'm most proud of. Another thing that we can do is... As you mentioned, we don't have to run uh, a lot of cover lines. We can do things that are very minimal. We can sometimes put no type on a cover. Uh, we can cover our logo. But we are definitely aiming, when, when people open their paper, 
we are definitely aiming to get them to pick up the magazine. And in a way, the other the other competing things are uh, the sections of the paper. You the know. book review. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These things are big draws. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, in this particular time, covers, I think, are making the rounds in social media often before the magazine even comes. And in a way, they're their own statement. They're like a little piece of art that people pass around. They can be their own comment. Um, and they serve as an advertisement for the magazine before it comes out. But we often do think about how those covers are going to look on social media or what their impact will be as they're passed around separate from the magazine, you know, because they are. Right. They're almost like posters for the magazine now. Yeah. Yeah. There's also been quite a change, at least from my perspective, in the schedule of published material. It's not unusual now to see something that you would have only seen on Saturday or Sunday, depending on when you got the Sunday Times on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And so I'll come to the printed paper over the weekend already having read three or four pieces during the week. Is that something that is um, intentional? Is that something that will continue? You know, it's interesting. That's been a discussion for a long time at the Times. Sometimes I, I worry that we release all the articles in the magazine and then everyone reads them and they get the the print and they've read a lot of what's in there. I've talked to people who say that they avoid the actual digital magazine articles because they want the pleasure of reading the, the print piece. But it really comes down to um, just gaining an audience for what we're making. And I think that we have discussed at different points releasing things over the weekend, but really people are reading these things more during the week, or at least there's a larger audience of people kind of sitting at their desks, uh, you know, looking at things online. I think that the kind of reading that takes place over the weekend is often more about the print experience, uh, where it's kind of a leisurely, you know, more entertaining kind of uh, look through a magazine. We're a little conflicted about releasing the articles, but at the same time, I think that our readership kind of demands it in the way that they are reading. Absolutely. And and, and as much as I might look at something that appears in the actual paper that's delivered to my door on Saturday or Sunday, I, I sometimes feel a relief like, oh, I've already read I that. <laughs> I can read something else. <laughs> yeah. But talk about how that impacts the trajectory of the magazine design and the sort of journey that you're taking through the magazine, which is very deliberate. You design a, a way for people to take that journey. How right. does that how do you feel about that changing when people are sort of reading whatever might pop up as the most emailed or the most viewed or or something that piques somebody's interest just because of the headline? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting because, as you mentioned, uh, a magazine, one of the special experiences I think about the magazine is, first of all, an uninterrupted reading experience because I feel like when we're online, we're constantly you know, interrupted, we're checking a text, we're, you know, clicking on other links. Um, and when you're reading a magazine, it's like a very solitary, it can be a very peaceful experience and also a curated experience where, as you say, we are led through an experience and, you know, oftentimes we will adjust the content of the magazine to hit certain notes. And so online, these things, you know, they're separated from the rest of the content. And um, sometimes that could be somewhat unsatisfying when you've seen, you know, 
as a whole, the magazine. Well, it's double duty. It has to do both things. It has to be a standalone piece of journalism, and then it has to be part of a journey that you're taking through an entire issue. Yes. And then there are also a lot of positives about that as well, including, you know, getting a lot of feedback from your readers. Um, Do you read a lot of the comments that readers post for different articles in the Times? Yes, I do. <laughs> I kind of enjoy looking through them. Yeah, our our readers are really smart. They often bring up really interesting points. Um, I enjoy I enjoy the discussion surrounding these things. One thing that came up in my research that I didn't know about that I wanted to ask you about was the Emmy Award nomination that you got for news and documentary new approaches for the magazine's issue, The Displaced. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) I don't know of too many designers that have been nominated for an Emmy Award. It's definitely a team effort. So (laughs) I was glad to be part of the team. That's extraordinary. And I also believe that you won Magazine of the Year from the Society of Publication Designers. Yes, we did. So congratulations, Gail. You're doing really, really extraordinary things with this really important magazine. Thank you, Debbie. Gail, thank you so much for all the incredible work you are doing, more important than ever before. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thanks so much, Debbie. To see Gail Bickler's handiwork, just check out the New York Times magazine section in the Sunday New York Times every week. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.